the location matters very much. How is the access? Are you on the main drive in a retail market? Or are you kind of off the beaten path? That is more or less important depending on what type of tenant and what type of deal you're buying. So although the clients and often we don't actually see the property, if it's true single tenant net lease, it doesn't mean that we're not diving in really, really deep on the analytic, on the actual location and demographics as well. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast, the podcast dedicated to simplifying the commercial real estate industry for the masses. Each week, we sit down with industry experts to dissect the many facets of commercial real estate and extract valuable lessons you can apply to your business. Whether you're a new or seasoned business owner or investor, the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast will be your go-to resource for all your commercial real estate needs. Now, here are your hosts, Rafael Collazo and Jeff Walston. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Academy podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Collazo, here with my co-host, Jeff Walston. How's it going, my friend? Going great, you know everything's going well. Uh, business is looking good, uh, which I'm thankful for. Uh, I'm glad it's not changing like this Kentucky weather that we're having. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like 72, 75 right now, and it's going to be 40 tomorrow. So uh, we don't know what you know when you, what you wake up to. You don't know if you need a jacket or short sleeve shirt. So, but anyways, it's going well. What about you, Raphael? How's it going? Great. No, I mean, I can't complain. Every day above ground is a blessing, so I'm very happy. And obviously, on the retail front, it's been extremely active, and you know. Today, we have uh, probably one of the top leaders uh, as far as thought leaders is concerned in the retail space. Um, you know, her content on LinkedIn and YouTube is something that I watch a lot of. And so I'm really excited to dive in and learn more about her backstory and then some of the insights she can share on the retail side. So, Carly Iacono, uh, welcome. Thank you so much, Raphael, Jeff. Great to see you guys. Appreciate uh, having me on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Oh, yeah. We, we know you're busy. So we're, we're definitely thankful to yeah. have an opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about your story and then learn a little bit more about what you do on a day to day. So what we usually like to do when we first speak to to our guests is learn a little bit more about them. So if you don't mind sharing your backstory, I think that'd be great. OK, I'll make it a, a quick one. Started out my family's in residential real estate, my dad and stepmom. So kind of grew up in that world going on meetings with my dad. Love real estate, love negotiation, but also have a background in finance, which is where I started my career. And then decided when I wanted to leave the consulting finance world that commercial real estate would be a great kind of merging of those two and decided to to pick that path over residential. And here we are. That was yeah. a very quick version. That was very quick. No, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're going to... No, we're going to we're going to dive into your story because it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And obviously, I've done a little bit of research on you prior to the call and, and and learned a little bit about some of the ventures you had prior to even, you know, I know you were residential for a bit and then had another venture. Uh, so we're excited to kind of learn more about that. So no, I, I was just curious about, you know, you said your family was in residential. Was there an aha moment? I'm going commercial and not even looking at residential uh, for, you know, as a future career or was there like, can you tell us the kind of like the dive a little bit more into the story of that? That'd be great. Sure, absolutely. So my dad was involved in a lot of construction projects along the Gulf Coast, um, condos specifically, beachfront condos. And when I moved down to work with him, this is a lifetime ago, there was a giant hurricane that happened while I was moving. So when I got there... What I ended up selling was not second homes and vacation properties, but it was more um, a future vision of a financial investment. So I was touring condos that had the the EFIS, the sides ripped off, there was mold everywhere. And I had to learn how to sell something based on future projections. And I actually really enjoyed it. It was a very challenging time, of course, in the world. 
or in our part of the world then, but I loved kind of looking at the real estate different. What could this be? What does this look like? And I think that was the start of it. I like the development piece. I like the numbers. I've always liked finance. And so I just figured that when I moved back up to the New York area, that was the right time to pivot and really focus on kind of what I wanted the rest of my career to look like. That's awesome. You know, yeah, and and you had you had referenced, you know, obviously your involvement in in the residential space and and your transition away from that for a little bit of time, or maybe I don't know if it, you transitioned away fully or if you just decided to jump into a business that you started called Yacht Yacht Smart. Like, what what exactly was that? And then I guess what was the impetus for getting into that? in the first place. So that was a crazy idea I had in my early 20s. I decided, okay, I'm, I'm moving across the country. Um, I'm going to switch my career path. So why not start a business? I, I knew nothing about boats at the time. So looking back, it's absolutely nuts. But it worked out. Thank goodness. It did not lose money, which is, I still think, kind of miraculous. And it, it was based on Freedom Boat Club, which of course is still in existence today, their membership model which was very common in the Southeast at the time, but nobody was doing it in the New York area. So I took that concept, I tweaked the membership model, and I started Yachtsmart in Hoboken, right in New York Harbor. And the thought process was, this is a great time to just try my own venture. I always wanted to to be basically president or CEO of some organization. And I thought, okay, this seems like a really fantastic opportunity. I'm going to give it a go. And I ran the business for almost seven years and then sold it to Freedom Boat Club and went into commercial real estate full time. That's awesome. So, I'm, and that's the one thing I'm kind of curious about is is obviously those experiences that you had in Yacht Smart. I'm assuming have they did they help translate when you decided to jump into the the commercial space? Of course, I think anything in finance business, anything in that world, all of your life experiences come together to make you a better advisor, a better broker. Um, it gave me experience managing people. Right. I had employees. I had captains. I had deckhands. I had clients who were sometimes very difficult to deal with. Right. So it just gives you more experience. Any of your your sort of past careers, I guess. And, and if you take that and you learn from it, of course, it makes you stronger at what you do today. And I think that specific job um, taught me so, so much um, time management, finance that you know, the business side of it, the expenses, it's really, it was everything soup to nuts that I was doing myself. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's an important point that you bring up regarding, you know, your past experiences, because we're each, I mean, people do business with people. So having that perspective to bring to the table and, you know, advising your clients on your life experiences, I, I can't tell you how many times I can bring back my, you know, you know, I, I come from a technology background. So, you know, I'm very astute when it comes to these types of you know, technological platforms and, and not only that, but but I can I can advise my clients in a more meaningful way based on those past experiences that I've had. And I'm assume, I'm assuming in your case it's been immensely helpful, especially on, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, because you know, you you share those similar life experiences. So I think so. And brokerage is incredibly entrepreneurial. You always mm -hmm. have to be evolving, reinventing yourself. You have to be one step ahead. It's basically running a small business within a larger organization. So mm -hmm. the skills translated very clearly. That's awesome. I would say it's kind of a, like you were saying, the captains and dealing with clients. It's Was that more of like a service uh, type company? Is that kind of what it was? Yeah, it was a, so it was a timeshare business. So we had members, okay. they would come, the boats would be ready for them. They could use them for certain time slots. Um, so it, it was a, a boat service business, really. Okay. So I could see how that actually helped you in, in going in fully into commercial because essentially that's what you're doing, right? Is you're offering a service to someone who's looking to 
uh, grow their dream essentially. So that's great. Which problem that, solving. That's yeah. what I feel like exactly. I do every day. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly. really what it is. Yeah. People, Over people bring, them. people bring you problems and then you have to solve. Right. Right. <laughs> we welcome them. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So you got into commercial real estate. Did you immediately know like retails where it's at or what made you decide just to focus on retail? I didn't. I wish I could say I had my whole business plan planned out, but yeah. absolutely not. Um, it was the asset class that I felt I was the most connected to. I thought of industrial and I thought, gosh, you know, I, I know nothing about industrial or office or except for just my personal experiences. I, I really didn't have a mentor, which was unfortunate. I think if you can find one, I recommend everybody find a great mentor. There weren't any really available to me at the time. Um, so I thought, gosh, I I understand retail real estate from a consumer perspective. Why don't we start here and see what the opportunities are? And the business plan really did morph like everyone does over time. You know, I started being told basically at my previous company, I had to database a certain number of accounts, a certain number of counties and have X number of records. And then you start cold calling. It was a model that I had to follow at the beginning. And then I quickly realized that that was not the exact business plan that I wanted to follow and wanted to move into more single tenants and more larger retail shopping centers instead of just everything, whether it be, you know, a mom and pop. My first listing agreement um, meeting was actually a mom and pop party planning store. And I've told this story on, on previous shows, but I basically went um, so excited to get a meeting. My first meeting, I go, the place is pretty much falling down was probably worth about $150,000. There was stuff everywhere. <laughs> Came back to the office and was like, I don't think this is a good plan. Like, I think I need to tweak my business plan a little bit. What do I want to be doing five years from now? And it wasn't, it was nothing wrong with that business, but that wasn't where I wanted to focus. So I, I realized then that I, I needed to pivot a little bit and and just started making incremental shifts to where I am today. That makes sense. Yeah, on the, on the retail side, like you had mentioned, I mean, I think my first retail deal was like a thousand square foot small grocery store deal. Um, obviously, very rewarding, but it's you can't pay the bill. It's hard to pay the bills when you're you know leasing those small spaces, and you know it's just part of part of the business, at least starting out. So, but, someone told me early yeah. on that every deal you do takes you one step farther towards more of that same type of product. So be mindful of what you're working on and how you're spending your time because that will start to define you. Because of your because people see you doing this stuff and they're like, oh, this guy or this lady knows exactly right. this is the type of stuff. That makes complete sense. This is what they're known for. And, and then mm -hmm. you get more of that. And if that's not what you wanted in the first place, mm -hmm. probably not a good thing to be working on. Absolutely. That makes sense. So you you had mentioned that you know you made the pivot. So you 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 obviously were doing you were you were you were in a situation where you were kind of focused on you know um, retail, but but what you were focusing on at the time was not what you wanted to. You, you you did an analysis and you're like, okay, you know, I really want to be more so on the net lease side, where you know you're dealing with larger institutional tenants. I'm assuming, and in most cases, so what made you decide to do that? Number one and number two. So what are the things that you did to get to that point? Um, where you now are operating at that that level. The one thing that drew me to single tenant net lease was the fact that it is really a national marketplace. So because the the deals trade across the country um, in very narrow cap rate sort of margins, you're able to have this unlimited field of opportunity. That's how I looked at it at the beginning, right? 
maybe I know 20% of the owners already in my region. But if I open this up nationally, gosh, it's just more people than I could ever possibly build a relationship with. So I love that about single tenant net lease. You're not confined to a, a certain radius because often the, the clients don't see the properties. We don't go view the properties. So you really can transact across state lines much easier than you can with other property types. So that was very attractive. Unlimited opportunity is the way I looked at it. Second, I like dealing with the corporate tenants. It just seemed easier to scale. The leases are more consistent. There's value in the, the credit of the tenants. I liked selling the deals more than, than some of the local tenants, just because of the, the nature of the leases and the types of investments. So I started to focus on the things that I, I thought would bring more future opportunity and become an expert in understanding those types of tenants and those types of deals. And that's where I focused my time at the beginning was, was really one of my first focuses was drugstores. So I learned everything I could about Walgreens and CVS and Rite Aid. Those were the, you know, still are really the three main players. I listened to their earnings calls. I read all their reports. I, you know, read all their stock analysts, anything I could to have a deeper level of knowledge than, than my competitors. And I think through doing that, I got more confident, which translated into better calls, better meetings. And then I started to get the the inventory from then on. That's awesome. And and the relationships you were developing were primarily with the developers of these products, I'm assuming? All different. You know, you really can find opportunity in lots of ways in brokerage. So um, I like to call it the sphere of influence. Who do you know in the industry that might have a client to refer to you? Developers, of course. That's mm-hmm. the right direct line. But attorneys are very important. Accountants, um, anybody in construction, there's so many more than just the, the initial developer where everyone thinks, I'm gonna, I'm gonna helm them and helm them and helm them. Deals can come a lot of different ways. So yes, we have a lot of developer relationships. They're very, very important with relationships with the REITs and the funds who are often and buyers. Um, but again, I think the sphere is more important than most people realize. For sure. And and, and what a kind of leading uh, question off of that is kind of interesting. You had mentioned how you your your end buyers a lot of times never see the properties at all. So I guess outside of the financial metrics, is there anything else you guys consider as far as whether or not a particular, you know, let's say a Dollar General in a particular location in Missouri? versus another one in another you know place like Oklahoma or whatever else. And that doesn't necessarily have to be Dollar General. I just use that as an example. So you can right. kind of take and run with it on that front. There's a lot to the analysis, mm-hmm. actually. So the lease, the lease term, the lease structure, the double net, triple net, are there any management responsibilities? That's number one, right? What is the actual mm-hmm. lease that the property is subject to look like? That's where a lot of the value is held. But it's still real estate at the end of the day. So the dirt... The location matters very much. How is the access? Are you on the main drag in a retail market? Or are you kind of off the beaten path? That is more or less important depending on what type of tenant and what type of deal you're buying. Is the population in that area growing? Is it shrinking? Uh, how is the traffic count? Um, and is it that directly in front of your property or is it a highway nearby? Like how many cars are actually stopping at that location? So although the clients and, and often we don't actually see the property, if it's true single tenant net lease, that doesn't mean that we're not diving in really, really deep on the analytics, on the actual location and demographics as well. No, I'm sure. And and that's why I thought I'd ask, just because it, you're right. I mean, 100%. I mean, just because it, on paper, it looks like this is a you know XYZ investment. I mean, 
there's also other factors at play that should be considered if, in fact, you want to hold the property for a longer period of time. Because, I mean, and how long are the terms typically on on these deals? And I'm assuming it's dependent on, you know, the different uh, corporations you're dealing with or, you know, what their what their appetite is. It really depends on the type of deal that we're talking about, the type of tenant. So drugstores were historically the longest term leases. They used to be 25 years with another 50 years of options on new builds. So 75 years completely modeled out, which is amazing. They pulled back a little bit. Most of the new builds are now 20 years. So everything's getting a bit shorter. Fast food was typically 20 years. Now we're seeing more new 15-year deals. But really anywhere, I would say, on the short end from 10 years for maybe a new urgent care up to 20 years plus for a drugstore. Molly, I know that you have your finger kind of on the post, especially uh, even outside of New York. So I'm curious to see... um, what do you believe the future of retail looks like? Because I know, you know, COVID and everything and everyone's kind of fumbling. And I'm just curious to get your take on that. Absolutely. So two separate discussions. We have the future of retail from the tenant perspective, and then we have what's happening with capital markets and retail real estate transactions. So I'll kind of touch on both quickly. Retail itself has never been stronger. And I, I think that surprises a lot of people. We have the lowest vacancy that we've had nationally since 2005. So vacancy is at historically low levels. We have very limited new completions, very limited construction in the last few years. There's really no new supply, very little coming to market. And at the same time, we have more than double more retailers trying to open than are projected to close in 2023. We have all these factors that are pushing rent up, of course, inflation as well. But the demand from the retailer side is fantastic. So the fundamentals, the rent increases, the the low vacancy, um, limited supply, and then a lot of tenants trying to open and expand is creating a very stable and, in fact, extremely strong asset class. Now, on the other side of that, we, of course, have what everybody's dealing with, which are historically They're not historically high, but interest rates, which have grown at an historically fast pace. So that's creating an illiquidity event in the market, meaning it's very difficult to finance properties right now. So we have a lot of buyer demand. We have tenants that want to expand. We have all these great things, but it's being constrained by the capital markets and interest rates right now. That makes complete sense. And, you know, I I, I can kind of attest to at least locally, because I, you know, most of my business that I operate is is obviously regional. So we do a lot in the Louisville metro area. And, you know, I can attest from the franchise side, I work with several franchise owners and we've been actively looking in the market for different retail spaces. And it's, we're competing with other, several other uh, groups. Um, And especially if you're talking on the restaurant side, second gen restaurant space is just very difficult to come by. Um, especially in the main retail corridors around town. And I'm sure in your local, in your market, and I know you operate more nationally, so you could probably speak to it from more of a national level, but you know, that's just my, my insight so far on the, on the Louisville market. So I think that you could certainly kind of project that to the rest of the country because the, the trends are the same. Part of it is driven by the high cost of construction because Correct, yeah. if, right, if it's too expensive for developers to build new product and rents don't increase at the same level to support the higher construction costs, then they're not going to build, right? If those construction projects don't pencil, they're not going to build. So that's what's creating part of our, our supply crunch and, and leading to exactly what you just said. You're out in the market with tenants and you can't find anything that that anybody is really excited about. So 
again, all that ties back to interest rates and just kind of where we are in the financial market. And and that kind of leads me to another question, just out of curiosity, with on on the corporate side. So as 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 these corporate entities like the Walgreens and other larger entities are looking to continue to expand, because I'm sure their their retail sales continue to be strong. Um, you know, there it's it's an, it's an equation about what they can pay in rent versus what you know the developer can construct the building for. So it, it's probably you're probably also seeing, I imagine, and maybe you can you can speak to this is the is the balancing act between you know what can the developer build the building for, especially now with interest rates spiking, versus what the tenants are willing to pay as far as that end you know net lease property. So how does that how is that have you have you seen that kind of be shifting as well? Yeah, that's always the sort of the math. You're right. Mm-hmm. So retailers will have rent to sales projections that mm-hmm. they need to stay within. So they can only increase their rent so much or it's not going to be a profitable store or location for them. So they're limited by their sales projections at that site, which probably are great, but still may not translate to the rent that the developer wants slash needs to make the project pencil. You've got construction costs, and then you have projected exit cap rates. So how much is that developer going to make when the project's actually done in 12 to 18 months? So as cap rates go up, developers' profits come down, so then they want a bigger spread above their construction costs. So it's really kind of coming at it from all angles. The developers need more spread because there's more risk to build right now, but at the same time, their costs are higher. Retailers want to expand, but are constrained by that rent to sales ratio so they can only pay so much. And that's why you're not seeing as many ground up projects. You're seeing more second gen and renovations happening. Great insights. That's awesome. So one of the, one of the things that I'm obviously curious about, and thank you for your insights on uh, the the national trends uh, pertaining to retail. I know a lot of people are going to gain value from those particular insights. One thing I'm really curious about, and this is something that you know I had mentioned earlier, is that you know I, I've I've watched a lot of your content digitally. Uh, with the CRE Fast Five and and other things you're doing on 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 vi- the video front, uh, tell me what the impetus for that was, and then I guess you know what are some of the benefits you've seen from that that uh, that discussion. Sure, happy to. So we actually started CRE Fast Five pre-pandemic. It was January, I guess that was January 2020, and the reason I started it was because I was having a lot of new investor conversations every day that were repetitive. So we would have a lot of brokers or, again, that fear of influence, people refer new buyers um, who are interested in that lease to our team, which is wonderful. We love referrals. We love dealing with new buyers. We're happy to have, of course, it touch as many clients as we can. But the problem was there's a quite a big education component to someone who's new to commercial real estate. So I found that I was having these extremely long conversations over and over, which were great, but I just couldn't have enough of them. So we thought, what if we start an educational video series that we can then send a few episodes out to clients and say, okay, here's a baseline. Watch all of these, jot down your questions, and then we're going to talk and kind of go to level two. So that's how it started. Fast forward three months, every the world shuts down. We thought for two weeks, ended up being, you know, a year and a half in the New York area. And it became a way for us to connect with clients and stay visible in the industry when we couldn't even walk into our office. We couldn't meet in person for a very, very long time. So that's really, that was the the shift in, in the uh, series. So again, it started just as the quick kind of, um, well, it really wasn't quick, but educational investor focused series. And then it went to, wow, how do we reach more people? And how do we make this our presence in the market at a time when it's really all we can do? 
And then, of course, now we're, we're all back. We're in the office five days a week. We're meeting in person. We're going to conferences. Everything is very, very different. But we found that it's an incredibly helpful tool to remain present and, again, continue to expand our reach. That's awesome. No, and 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 I appreciate the fact that you had mentioned you were getting a lot of the same questions over and over and over again. Um, there's this book I read called High Output Management. It was written by the CEO, former CEO of Intel. And I remember in a section in that book, he had talked about how talked about leverage, and he had talked about you can do a one to one management discussion with an individual training wise or whatever else. But if you want to really achieve leverage, you have to be able to scale that in some capacity, whether that's documenting it on a on a word document or whatever, or, you know, video format. And so I remember when I read that, I was like, oh my gosh, like the, the power of leverage is unbelievable. And so the fact you've been able to do that is in my opinion, invaluable. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, I mean, you, like you said, you've seen the, the value in, in do, continuing to do so over time. I think that I'm not sure who coined this phrase, but money follows attention is true. Mm-hmm. Um, of course you want that to be professional attention, sure. oh, course, right? Yeah. Not not some other types, but at the end of the day, the more people you can reach, the more visibility you have, the more influence, um, and and then hopefully, and financial gain you'll get. Uh, Carly, I know that we uh, t- we typically like to ask this question because Raphael and I are both uh, avid readers. He so much as uh, he likes to listen to Audible and stuff like that, and uh, I'm the old fashioned bookworm to pop open the book and all that good stuff, but. Uh, the question is, is what is one of the most impactful books that you've ever read? And it doesn't have to pertain to commercial real estate. It could be uh, something that maybe has changed the trajectory of your life uh, on a personal level. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to hear that. So I'll answer that two ways. Personally, sure. I find reading things outside of my day-to-day core focus to be the most impactful. So I love Stephen Hawking. I love things to do with with time and space and just really, you know, about as far from commercial real estate as possible, right? The science, the things that make you go, wow, Kelly, like, I need to look at my life differently. We're much more insignificant than we thought or whatever I'm concerned about is, is just so minute compared to all the vastness that's out there. So I love things like that on a more tangible, probably easier for listeners to, to kind of put into play. Our CBRE podcast, The Weekly Take, done by Spencer Levy, is fantastic. He really does a great job, covers all different asset types, leasing, different markets. Um, so that's a lot of fun. And that's something that I make sure to always listen to each week as well. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. The, the, the podcasting game, like the podcasting front on the on the commercial real estate side has definitely been amplifying over time. So it's mm-hmm. I'm sure I, I, I've, I've listened to a few of the weekly takes as well. And they're they're very jam packed with information. So it's great. That's awesome. So, Carly, you know, we obviously greatly appreciate your time. You know, we're you know, very extremely busy and we just are thankful that we were able to spend a little bit of time with and learn more a little bit about you. So one thing we usually like to do with, near at the end of the episode is to ask our guests to contribute to something we call the commercial real estate treasure chest. It's a repository of resources that we make available to our audience on our website. And usually uh, our guests contribute something like a helpful PDF or ebook or really anything that they feel would be of value to the audience. So if you don't mind, I'd I'd love to give you an opportunity to tell us what you're going to share today. Absolutely. So I would love to direct the listeners back to CRE Fast Five, which is our weekly video series. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on all the podcast channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, type it into Google. You will find it. Um, And I think the nice thing about CRE Fast Five, it's grown so much in the last two and a half, three years now. There's something for everyone. 
So if you're a newer investor, just search through the episodes. You'll see a lot of educational content because as I mentioned, that's how we started. If you're a more advanced investor, we have a lot of pretty granular, detailed market data and forecasts available um, based on extensive CBRE research. So, you know, find the episodes that speak to you there. If you're a broker, there's things on sales techniques and tenant spotlights and things like that. So I would say wherever you're coming at the business from, whatever side, just search through hundreds of episodes and find what speaks to you and hopefully it'll be helpful. That's awesome. And you will go ahead and include that in, in, the, in the, CR, uh, the CRE treasure chest link. So feel free to stop by if you're listening. Carly, I know that everyone's going to be trying to get in contact with you, especially since uh, you seem like you just have your posts on on the retail trigger there. And I, I can't wait. So I'm just curious of how you would like them to get in contact with you, maybe to do a deal or uh, just to, to reach out and maybe offer to be on another podcast. So. Sure, sure. Yeah. Happy to connect with, with anyone. LinkedIn is a great medium. Instagram, um, if you just type in my name, K-A-R-L-Y, Iacono, you will find all of our CBRE contact information, email. Um, like to be pretty easy to find. So whatever platform or method is easiest, we're happy to connect. That's awesome. So for those of you guys who are listening, we'll go ahead and include that in the show notes. So you guys will be able to access that and uh, get in touch with Carly. Because she is a wealth of knowledge. So again, Carly, thank you. thank you so much. No, really, we really do appreciate your time. It really has been great to get to know you a little bit more during the podcast episode. If you guys are listening to this in a podcast format, we would greatly appreciate if you could leave a five-star review. It's made a huge impact on our ability to reach a broader audience. And we've seen a significant amount of download increases as a result. Along with that, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, we would greatly appreciate it if you can like and subscribe. It makes a huge impact with the YouTube algorithm and ensures more and more people can hear this message and learn about the many facets of commercial real estate. So Thanks again so much for tuning in and we'll see you all next time.